Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. My guest this week is Professor Wendy Suzuki. We met in New York probably a couple of years ago now, Mm -hmm. and we recorded a podcast episode about 18 months ago, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Do jump back and listen to that after you've listened to this episode, ideally. So a little bit more about Professor Wendy Suzuki. She's the Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology at New York University. Mm -hmm. She's the author of a couple of books, Good Anxiety, Bad Anxiety, and the one that I've got in my hand here, Healthy Brain, Happy Life. Her website, which is Mm wendysuzuki.com, contains lots of peer-reviewed articles that she's had published. She runs an interactive lab at New York University, I believe, studying primarily the effects of exercise on the brain. There's much we don't know, but there's much that you're discovering. We'll talk about some of that. You've got a major research interest in brain plasticity, studying the memory and effects of exercise on the brain. Your TED Talk, The Brain-Changing Effects of Exercise, has been viewed over 6.2 million times, which is extraordinary. And I know you've done more than one TEDx talk. And in amongst all of that, you somehow find time to do a lot of exercise yourself. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Is that really your well-being? You've got to be one of the only professors who actually teaches their own exercise class on campus. I think I might be the only one in the world. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit of research and couldn't find anyone else. You're also a foodie. You're a lover of classical music. Professor Wendy Suzuki, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, welcome back. We've got so much to get through. I feel we should jump right in. Okay. The book that I'm going to refer to quite a bit is the Healthy Brain, Happy Life book, which is out now in paperback, which is a mm-hmm. fantastic book. We were just talking about before we went on air about how it's, I, I described it as sort of semi-autobiographical and you said it's very autobiographical. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to bring a lot of you into that book? Yeah. I mean, I think of this book like a science memoir. Mm. It was going to be a more traditional, here are the studies that you should know about. But it was really my, my book agent was very, very convincing that I had a lot of personal stories and that that is going to make this book unique Mm -hmm. and make the science much more memorable and understandable if I couch it in kind of the real life reasons why I study memory, why I study exercise and why the brain matters. Mm. And she was right. Yeah. It made it unique. It made it much more fun to write or actually much more challenging to write because I was very much used to the more academic and factual emphasis. Mm. But basically writing this book made me a storyteller. And so in the process, I started doing um, the moth talk. I don't know if you have that in the UK, but the moth storytelling hour. Mm. And I've done Story Collider, which is a talk about storytelling for science, topics in science. Mm -hmm. And I found I loved doing that. So it kind of opened up a whole new way of communication for me. Yeah. Well, it made the book very memorable. And of (laughs) course, yeah, you can see where I'm going with this. The book is about memory. I mean, a lot of it's about memory anyway, certainly the first part of the book. And I'd really like to start talking about that. There's a a sort of a, a personal connection on two levels for me. One is my father-in-law has Alzheimer's. In fact, I was just back about a month ago from a big fundraising trip to the Arctic where we took part in the 
Arctic Circle Race. So we did that to raise funds for wow. Alzheimer's research. So it's a very strong personal interest. Uh-huh, wonderful. I also have in the past been a very heavy drinker of alcohol and I haven't for the last seven years had a drop. And I wonder, I'm interested in what effects that's had on my memory, if any. So there's a kind of two strands to my personal interest, but tell me first, or tell us first about how you just sort of discovered a lot more about how the brain, well, stores memories, converts memories, holds on to memories and so on. Well, it was really my great luck that I ended up in graduate school at University of California, San Diego. And it was this wonderful, wonderful place to focus on the brain mechanisms of long-term memory. They were just fantastic scientists there. And not just one, but a whole group of them. And so I was able to do my doctoral dissertation with three very famous scientists of memory, studying the anatomy of the structures, how they're connected, how they're together, and also the function of these structures. What is unique about this key brain structure that I focused on, the hippocampus? Because it turns out that lots of brain areas help you remember things, but the hippocampus is critical for kind of what we all think of memory, memory of our childhood, memory of our grandma and grandpa. We call that declarative memory, memory for facts and events, memory that describes the events and the personal histories of our lives. That is what the hippocampus is critical for. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's a beautiful structure. It kind of looks like a jelly roll. And so it's kind of this intertwined area. So for the anatomist in me that likes to understand and analyze interesting, mysterious structures, it's a beautiful one. So I'm a little bit biased, but I just was always fascinated with the structure that would allow us to, you know, form a memory that could last a lifetime. A lifetime could be 80, 100, Mm. over 100 years. And that event might've only lasted a moment your first kiss or the first time that you held your baby in your arms, those are memories that last for a whole lifetime. Mm. And so for me as a young student of science and neuroscience, that was kind of the ultimate question. How does that work? And how can we understand that more deeply? And and so it was that fascination together with this group of scientists that happened to be at UCSD, where I happened to get into graduate school, that it was just clear what I wanted to study. Mm. And what was it you discovered specifically about memory and the human brain? So I would say that the most important discovery that I made, there were kind of two steps. The first was the work that I did in graduate school at UCSD with this amazing group of scientists was really a, let's call it a rediscovery of key brain areas that before this work that I did with them, we really didn't understand how critical they were for memory. But what this work did was highlight how important these key areas were. It's not just the hippocampus, but it's the hippocampus together with the cortical areas that surround it. And they're not just kind of feeding information in. They're not just kind of way stations. They are doing something unique and very special with memory together with the hippocampus. So we did that through an topical studies showing that, you know, first that they're providing massive amount of input to these areas, but then also looking at the effects of damage to these areas and seeing, oh my gosh, it causes terrible memory loss. 
That was stage one. Stage two was figuring out, okay, well, how do they work? Because it's one thing to say, okay, if you damage this area, you have a memory deficit. Okay, it must be important for memory. You know it's important for memory, but how does it contribute to memory? And so the work in my lab at NYU asked a more difficult question. We wanted to understand patterns of neural activity and the signaling that these individual brain areas did to help us form new memories. And to do that, we can record the activity of individual brain cells as subjects were learning something new. Mm. And so what we discovered was there are unique contributions of these individual areas. The hippocampus is particularly important for timing. And this part wasn't in the book because I was in the middle of discovering it as I wrote the book. Critical for our ability to process information over time because think of a story that is part of our personal history. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. One of these areas bring in visual memory. The hippocampus binds it together into that beginning, middle, and end. And another key area in there that was the part of the discovery in graduate school is important for the kind of the spatial layout of that memory. Where did it take place? Who was standing where? And so those are some of the details that we were able to uncover. And it's just, it's not the end. You know, I think, okay, we did it. It's, it's done. There's still so much to understand. Thousands of neuroscientists continue to be fascinated with memory. So that's just a little flavor. Yeah, brilliant. Well, congratulations on that discovery. So what does it mean in practical terms for how we, how we look after our memory, if you like? How we, you know, what can we do to enhance memories, to hold on to them for longer? Yeah, yeah. Tell us anything in regard to that. The answer is that the kinds of questions that I was asking in science was really, they're called basic science questions. How does it really work? You know, what is it doing? What is that core function? And it also gives you a flavor that there are big questions in the brain we still don't understand. So we're going for those big, basic answers. But it doesn't tell you how to keep it. Mm -hmm. I figured out, okay, hippocampus is important for timing. My studies there told me nothing about how to keep it. I was just trying out what are those signals happening. But to get to that question, which is critical, this is where the shift to my new area of research, the effects of physical activity on brain function, Mm -hmm. come because I switched this area when I noticed how much regular physical activity was enhancing my brain function, including my long-term memory, that form of memory I knew was dependent on the hippocampus and these surrounding structures. Mm -hmm. And so this work is much more directly able to address not just enhancement, but longevity of memory. And Mm -hmm. the longevity of memory comes with the discovery that One of the things that exercise does for the hippocampus, it relates the birth of brand new brain cells. That is called hippocampal neurogenesis, new birth Mm -hmm. neurogenesis. And it was discovered in rodents. It was shown that humans also have new birth of hippocampal cells in adulthood. There's currently a controversy over that, but I'll address that in a second. Okay. But studies in animals clear. Lots of hippocampal neurogenesis. You give animals access to exercise and there is increase in hippocampal function. There's many more of these new hippocampal cells and these new hippocampal cells work better than the old hippocampal cells because Mm -hmm. they are more excitable. They're kind of like, I call them teenage hippocampal cells. They get into trouble, they they join lots of different memory circuits. Mm -hmm. And so you want a lot of these cells. And the more cells that you have, 
not only the stronger the hippocampus is, that is more hippocampal, uh, better work hippocampal cells means a better hippocampus. That is the core of why it helps with longevity. Because this exercise in neurogenesis is not going to cure any neurodegenerative disease. It's not going to cure Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. But what it does is it strengthens a brain area that is very susceptible to both normal aging, susceptible to dementia, and susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. So you're basically making the susceptible area as strong as you can with lifelong exercise so that by just naturally it lasts longer. And even if you do have Alzheimer's in your heritage, as I do, you can stave it off because you have a stronger hippocampus to start with when you get into those older ages. Yeah. Motivation for daily, my daily exercise that I do first thing in the morning. Yeah. Now I want to come back to that whole principle of exercising as a way of enriching the brain and staving off memory issues. Yeah. We actually have a client we've worked with who has an early onset Alzheimer's. She's in her fifties. Yeah. And the exercise that she's Mm -hmm. been doing with us or my company has Mm -hmm. held off the disease a little. It slowed the progression of it, which is, I think is an incredible story. And she's done that through physical movement, you know, all Uh the other benefits we get from that. Can you talk to us a bit first though about what is the mechanism of action with something like Alzheimer's or dementia? What exactly is happening in the brain? So with Alzheimer's dementia, it is basically, I mean, the easiest way to describe it is uh, mucking up of normal brain function. You get, everybody's heard of plaques and tangles. It's gunk that build up in the brain that first kind of choke the cells and then kill the cells. And where do you first kill these cells with your plaques and tangles? In the hippocampus and the surrounding cortical areas. But then what the progression, which is why the first signs of dementia and Alzheimer's are always these memory impairments, Mm -hmm. long-term declarative memory impairments. You no longer have the ability to form these memories that form your personal histories. But as the disease progresses, and to date, there's still no, no good treatment for Alzheimer's to get at those plaques and tangles. What happens is the plaques and tangles that start in the hippocampus towards the middle part of the temporal lobe then spread out all through the brain. And when they reach the key centers of the brain that control your breathing and your heart rate, that's when you pass away of Alzheimer's disease. And what causes those plaques and tangles? Yeah, that's a great question. So the current thinking is that there's lots of different possible causes. Part of it is genetic. Part of it could be environmental with Mm -hmm. toxins causing these things. And that's part of the unknown. If we knew what caused it, it would be easier to block it. But Mm -hmm. it's a very, very complicated disease. And it gets more complicated with the fact that even if you don't show signs of Alzheimer's disease, everybody gets some plaques and tangles mm. towards the ends of your life. So how do, we, how do we shift that balance from even if you have plaques and tangles that you jump into Alzheimer's disease or not? These are questions we're still trying, trying mm. to answer, and there's still no satisfactory answer at the moment. Yeah. I'm sure you've read the work of Professor Matthew Walker on sleep. Yes. And his theory that well, I'm going to, to a scientist, it's going to sound awful, but this is my understanding of it. During the night, if we get a good night of sleep, so a, enough hours of sleep and the right composition of sleep with REM and deep and light, we can effectively flush out the brain. Is it the glymphatic system? Yes. Which is a flushing of the brain, which flushes yeah. out, the theory goes, these plaques and tangles, and therefore mitigating or 
perhaps preventing, we think, the onset of Alzheimer's because of the buildup of the plaques and the tangles. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think of that theory? So, I mean, I think it's an interesting theory. I think it has a long way to go before we actually have direct evidence for it. What right. I am sure of is that, and I'm sure Matthew would agree, that sleep is essential for healthy brain functioning. Mm. So lack of sleep causes more stress on the brain. And stress is terrible for the brain. Stress is something that causes not necessarily black plaques and tangles, but lots of other stresses on the brain. So I consider sleep similar to exercise in the sense that it is two of the most healthy things that you can do for your brain. For mm. I think of what's happening with exercise during the day as kind of providing this wonderful bubble bath of good neurochemicals and growth factors for your brain. So you're giving your brain this little bubble bath every single time you work out. And the sleep is kind of <laughs> flushing all that good stuff down the drain and filling it up with, with nice, nice clean water. It can't be emphasized enough how critical good normal sleep and regular normal sleep is for your brain. So, And both of them are, are decreasing stress levels, different kinds of stress levels in your brain in wonderful ways. So I think they're both very important. Again, I think there's a way to go to prove the specific theory he has right now. I certainly agree that it's critical. And I think that for people that want to focus on having a healthy brain, it must include not just regular exercise, but good sleep patterns and, of course, good eating as well. You can't do both those things and have lots of sugar and high fat and no vegetables and expect to have a healthy body and brain. So um, all these things are, are playing a role. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Now, health's very interconnected, isn't it? Now, you yes. tell a story in the book about a chap called Thomas Keller, who I believe is a restaurateur in New York. Yes. Can you just repeat that story? Because it, it highlighted to you, didn't it, the importance of memories. Yes. And where I'm going with this is how can we help to solidify memories so that we can call on them when we're older? So firstly, would you mind just yeah. telling that anecdote about Thomas Keller? Sure. So I was reading the Wednesday food section of the New York Times. And there was an article about Thomas Keller, who's a very famous chef. He owns the French Laundry in Yountville, California, and Per Se in New York. So, you know, I love those restaurants. And I'm a big foodie, and I love reading about special chefs and how they create all of their amazing foods. And so I was looking forward to an article, to an article like that. But it was actually a very autobiographical article. It's about his relationship with his father that he lost contact with, but then got reconnected with later in life. And so his father moved to Yountville to be with him, to live with him so they could have you know, more of an interaction, which was a lovely story. But, but sadly, relatively soon or too soon after that, that happened, that wonderful reunion happened, his father was in a terrible car accident and Thomas Keller took care of him, nursed him, but he, he passed away. And it, it was a very moving story. But the thing that really struck me was at the end of the story, Thomas Keller was quoted as saying, you know, in the end, all we really have is our memories. And you can just feel that, you know, he held those memories later in life to finally be reconnected with your own father. And it didn't matter how much money he had or, you know, how much money the father left. That, that was irrelevant. It was those memories of sharing food and sharing his life with his father at the end that was so precious. And I thought, yeah, that says it right there. That mm -hmm. in the end is our most precious 
commodity is our memories. And yeah. that is that is part of the reason why I I have been fascinated with memories all our life, and it, and it does define who we are as people. It defines our personal histories. You know, mm. who would I be if I didn't have my memories of high school and my memories of college and my memories of growing up and spending weekends with my favorite aunt? And all these things make us up, and it just brought home how critical memory is. And we often, we don't think about that on an everyday level. But as a neuroscientist who studies memories, I loved that story because it really brought it home in a beautiful yeah. way. Well, and it definitely did for you because you talk in the book about how it changed your relationship with your parents. You started to say, I love you at the end of conversations, which had been such a cultural no-no. Yes, yes. It changed the way that you interacted in a number, a lot of different of your personal relationships as you talk about in the book. Yeah, for me, connection is a huge part of being alive and being human and making shared memories yeah. is a big part of that connection as well, making yes. them, but also drawing on them. I've got a lot of friendships that I've known for well, just about half my life now for some of them, some of them yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And the bank of shared memories that we have, you know, I want to hold on to those. My, yeah. my goal is to be a hundred and walking, right. talking and, and being able to make my own decisions, you know, to be in charge of my own faculties and certainly to yeah. be able to recall those memories as a fourth one that I should add on to that. Yeah. You talk in a book about how we can use emotion mm -hmm. amongst other things to strengthen memories. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So right next to the hippocampus in the brain, right in front of it is a small structure called the amygdala. Amygdala means almond. It's, it's almond shaped. And we know that it's critical for emotional memory, both negative emotional memory and positive emotional memory. And that kind of charge of emotion is very important to help the longevity of a memory. Why do we know this? We remember the happiest and the saddest moments of our lives. And that does not happen in the same way unless we have the amygdala intact. And so, I mean, just to continue on with the Thomas Keller story, I had inspired by this, I had this revelation or just realization when my father developed terrible memory loss from dementia. He went from just normal, dad was dad, to I can't remember how to get to the 7-Eleven that he used to drive to every afternoon to uh, get his afternoon cup of coffee. And it was, it was a very scary situation, and I got him uh, the best neurologist that I could find. But I realized, as you mentioned, that you know, in my culture, so I'm Japanese-American, my parents were born in the United States, but we still have carry on some traditions from the Japanese culture. And one of them is that we never say emotional stuff to each other. <laughs> and it meant that as adults, my parents and I had never said, I love you. We said it when I was young, but never as adults, because that was kind of too too emotional and too mushy. Mm. And um, when my father started having this dementia, and I know a lot about it, and it was eventually diagnosed as, as Alzheimer's dementia, I thought, wait a second, I, I don't think I like this tradition. And so I, I decided I wanted to start saying I love you. But I was living in New York and they live in California and I couldn't just start saying it out of the blue. That would feel too, too weird after never saying it as an adult. So I decided to ask permission to say, I love you. So I had this conversation on the phone where, uh, you know, first I asked my mom, I said, you know, Hey, you know, we, do you ever notice we never said, I love you. And what do you think about starting to say, I love you at the end of these telephone calls? And, and that was met with 
a huge gap of silence because she didn't know what, what I was asking. Mm. And then finally she said, and this is what I was scared of. I was afraid she was going to say no. I don't really want to. And she said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And so we said very awkward, I love yous. Mm. And then I talked to my dad and I asked him the same thing. And of course he said, yes, I was less worried about my dad. But the thing that happened the, the following week when I called back, you know, I uh, talked to my mom and we said, I love you. And that was just a little bit less awkward, which was great. And then I mm. talked to my dad and I was ready to remind him because a week is a long time for somebody with dementia. That, that, is, that is a long-term memory. Mm. And I was all ready to remind him, you know, dad, remember last week we had the conversation. We're going to start saying, I love you. But, but he, he said it first at the end of that conversation and really surprised me. And he always remembered it for several years before he passed away. He always said it first. He, he always remembered that. And that's my best example of the power yeah. of an emotional memory and the power yeah. of, of emotional resonance. It was very rare for his child to ask permission <laughs> to say, I love you. It was a very emotional and memorable thing. And that allowed him to create a new long-term memory when his hippocampus was not working very well. And that is my best example for why situations with emotional resonance are memorable for us and how we can use that to help remember the things that are important to us. Mm. And let's, I love that story. It's a, it's a great anecdote and really proves the point, I think. Let, let's move on to other ways in which we can enrich our brain and, and therefore our memory. And I know that the main thrust of your work is around physical exercise. And for your own journey into that, I'll refer people back to our previous podcast or your book okay. or both. Yes. Because we talked about you know your journey. Into, I think three words you used in the book, your words, uh, fit, fat, and fearful. But that was halfway through your journey. Yes. I'm definitely yes. quoting all that. You're looking at me as if to say, <laughs> they are your words. Yeah, but that yeah. was halfway through your journey, wasn't it? Because you, you weren't fit um, at the very outset. You did nothing at all. But I'll let people read the book to, to hear that, that aspect of your story. Yes. But I know that exercise is a huge part of how you enrich your brain and, and all, everything you've discovered around physical exercise. So let's start with that point there. Now, what do we know about the effects of exercise on the brain and, and therefore memory? Yeah. So there are so many positive things that exercise does. And that's the wonderful thing about exercise, but it makes it harder for a scientist like me to study them and keep track of all of them because there are so many things happening. Mm. So let me start with probably the thing that the people that are part of a regular exercise routine notice, the mood effects. Mm. You feel good after a workout. And not only are you just proud of yourself, yeah, I did it, but there is a happiness, a better mood. And that is because physical activity stimulates the release of dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, endorphins, and enkephalins, lesser known, but probably doing what we thought endorphins were doing, but it, it might be in, enkephalins doing it. Anyway, okay. you get the idea. This is where I created this image of the brain's bubble bath, that these things are being stimulated and secreted by the brain after every single workout, such that you not only feel better, but a regular physical aerobic activity has been shown to be as effective as the most commonly used antidepressant mm. to treat major depressive disorder. Now, I do not have major depressive disorder, but after every single workout, I do notice that burst of energy and better mood. Mm. But that's not all it's doing. It's also stimulating what's called 
growth factors. Growth factors are factors that are helping the brain grow and create connections or synapses. A key growth factor, it's not the only one, but it's the one we know most about, so lots of people talk about it. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that is the factor that is stimulating the birth of those hippocampal neurons. You cannot get those new hippocampal neurons to grow unless you have BDNF around, and one of the best ways to stimulate that is exercise. It's going up together with the dopamine and the serotonin. Other growth factors are likely as or more important than BDNF in the prefrontal cortex, which is also highly sensitive in a positive way to every single workout that you do. There's improvement of prefrontal function. There's no evidence for new brain cells being grown there, but evidence for the axons to be strengthened as you exercise in the prefrontal cortex and more synapses in the prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex and certainly better prefrontal function. So you're able to shift and focus your attention better. Your working memory, that memory that keeps things in mind as we are having the conversation, that is also improved. So we've hit prefrontal cortex, we've hit hippocampus, we've hit the neurotransmitter systems, And the other thing that is improved is the circulatory system. So with regular aerobic exercise, you get stimulation of brand new blood vessels in the brain. That is called angiogenesis. Why is that good? It's good because the brain is the number one user of oxygen in the entire body. And the more blood vessels you have, the better that that oxygenated blood can perfuse the entire brain. So now we have something with exercise that's global. It is helping the whole brain to get better oxygen. And think about this as you age, we become more and more susceptible to strokes, which are, you know, bursting of blood vessels in the brain. The best thing to have in your brain, if a blood vessel burst is more blood vessels. And Mm -hmm. so imagine yourself, you know, getting more and more blood vessels as you are exercising. So as you get more and more susceptible to strokes, you have lots of blood vessels there to help recovery go on. And plus just more blood vessels, again, means better perfusion for your entire brain. So there's also metabolic, and finally the last one, metabolic changes. So your brain has improved metabolism, basically, with regular exercise. We're hitting it on all levels. Mm -hmm. We have mood boosts. We have structural strengthening in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. We have overall better circulatory function, and we have improved metabolism in the brain. So the brain is processing its transmitters and kind of getting rid of the waste products that Matthew Walker is talking about that gets flushed out at night. Well, it's, it's actually being flushed out all the time. And so exercise helps with that as well. Okay. So the next obvious question is what type of exercise do we know? Yeah. So we know the most about aerobic exercise, or exercise that gets your heart rate up. Yep. Why? Because the vast majority of the exercise studies have focused on aerobic activity. Now, fewer studies have looked at strength training activities, weightlifting, things like that, and the results are mixed. Some find good results, some find no results. Mm -hmm. And it's unclear whether that is because the right formula has not been found or it's not as effective as aerobic exercise. My best guess, my hypothesis for this is that there will be positive effects of all kinds of exercise and we just need a little bit more time to find that perfect exercise prescription and match it with the right brain function. 
So that's part of what I'm doing in my lab. Okay. Trying to figure out what those mappings are. Yeah. Okay. That would be interesting. And how long do we know how long you need to exercise to get these benefits? Yeah. So lifelong benefits can start with as little as regular walking, which can be aerobic. I mean, if you're a fit Olympic athlete, no, walking's not going to do it, but most of us are not. And most of us are on the other end of the spectrum. So walking can be aerobic. And this is what I like to emphasize. Don't get discouraged. You think, oh, I, I really don't have an exercise program as well. Because if you are on that other end of the spectrum, it takes less for you to get to an aerobic level of activity, which is great. You know, you know the rest, like I, I have to work for a much longer time to get my heart rate up because I've uh, kind of built my aerobic capacity up. But yeah. that means that if you get just getting started, a walk is good and it does count. Yeah. So do not compare yourself to a triathlete or your neighbor who goes to the gym five days a week. You are getting, especially if you're not a regular gym goer can get a great workout with a good power walk every day. And regular walks three to five times a week have been shown to be effective to decrease your chances of getting dementia by 30%. 30% is nothing to sneeze at. But then a recent study in 2018 in Swedish women suggested that high fit women in middle age, if you get yourself to high fit in middle age, 40 years later when you're older, you are 90% less likely to get dementia. Now wow. that is, that's a correlation. That's not causation, Yeah, but yep. it, it is one of the most striking findings and it gives a nice range. You can start mm. with walking, but guess what? The more you work out and make this part of your regular life, the more chances you have of decreasing your probability of getting mm. dementia. By a massive amount. I'm, I'm a huge fan of walking as, as a form yeah. of active transport, yes. as a way of getting base, really building a foundation of fitness. So I am yes. very fit. We've recently come back from the world's toughest ski race. And um, while I was there, someone asked us about our training. In fact, we were doing uh-huh. a podcast when we got back and someone asked about our training. And they were quite surprised by my initial answer, which we built up. We already had a very good level of base fitness. Yeah. And what really underpins that is yeah. a lot of walking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course we did some specific fitness stuff, you know, cross-country skiing and climbing yeah. hills. But actually what underpins my fitness is just a hell of a lot of walking. I, I yeah. do wear an Apple Watch and because it's linked to my Vitality uh-huh. Health Insurance predominantly. But I do between 14, 15, 16,000 steps a day. And that's just going about my business. So yeah. Yeah. active, you know, I make sure I stand and all this other stuff that yeah. is a significant part of people's fitness. It shouldn't be that. And you've just backed it up with a couple of excellent studies and stats. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that is such an important message. Maybe the most important message from this podcast is every step does count. You've yes. just illustrated with your own personal fitness regime. And we see it in the studies that mm. walking is a great baseline. And people get discouraged so quickly before they even you know walk into the gym. They don't even make it to the gym. But you don't have to go to the gym. You can add walking in to your day. And I just did a PBS special based on this book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life. And so I had a whole bunch of even new brain hacks. So Healthy Brain, Happy Life is filled with brain hacks. And my Mm -hmm. favorite new one that I'll share with your audience is called the Mrs. Doubtfire Brain Hack. If you saw the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, you remember that there's a great scene with Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire vacuuming to music. 
Yes. But it is the most aerobic vacuuming that you ever can imagine. And it's all about making those those chores. You know, house cleaning, you got to do it sometimes. You can make it pretty darn aerobic. You mm. go to, I don't know if you have Costco. Do you have Costco? We do, yeah. Yeah, we okay. do. So, you know, the huge thing, go to Costco. Go do a few rounds around the whole store before you go do the shopping. That is a great way to get even, even more steps mm. into your regimen. But I'm also a big fan of dance. One of my new research partners is the dancer Julianne Huff from Dancing with the Stars. And she's starting a new dance program. And it is just infectious. You get good music and pick your music that you like and just start moving and do it like nobody's watching and do it when nobody's watching. So you're even less inhibited. But it is a great way. You don't need special clothes. You don't need a gym membership. You need an iPod or just a computer and an open space. And everybody yep. has that. So. Yep. Love it. I, do, I agree. I think that's one of the most, if not the most important message thus far as well. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.